Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by HBO's American Pickle. An American Pickle stars Seth Rogen as Herschel Greenbaum, a 1920s American immigrant who is accidentally brined in a vat of pickles for 100 years, emerging in present-day New York City. Seth Rogen also plays Herschel's only surviving relative, his great-grandson Ben, a mild-mannered computer coder living in Brooklyn. It's rated PG-13. You can stream the new Max original on American Pickle August 6th, only on HBO Max. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he too has a surprise album dropping with Boney Vare at midnight. It's Andy Greenwald! Would you be surprised if I had a surprise album? I, nothing surprises me anymore, man. Isn't that <laughs> the, pro- the point of 2020? Is, is my capacity to be shocked is gone? Greenwald, it's Thursday. What a show we have for our faithful listeners today. Uh, today we also have Aside from our summation of our feelings on dark and time travel, we'll chat a little bit about I May Destroy You. And then we have a really nice long interview with Mark Duplass uh, in the second half of the show where Mark talked about this fourth and final season of Room 104, which debuts on Friday, which he appears in the first episode of. It's the first time he's appeared in Room 104. And it's a really cool episode. I definitely want people to check it out. It's a great conversation, though, that goes in a ton of different directions about the state of making stuff in America right now, basically, and what it means to do the job that Mark does and also a lot of other stuff. So, you know, the Red House painters come up even. So there's tons of different things get populated into that interview. I really enjoyed our chat with him. Andy, how are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for asking. Things are, I just think, I just feel like things are generally like pretty good. You know what I mean? Uh Uh-huh. So so it just kind of gets me through. Gets okay. me through. I did, um, Chris, before we get into our, our, our regular scheduled programming, I did watch a new TV show that I wanted I to tell you about. Yeah. When, so, okay, so just again, I'm, I'm all into pulling back the curtain. Uh, when Chris says, I heard about it, that's because I felt compelled to tell him. Chris doesn't like surprises on the podcast anymore, even though a surprise resulted in the greatest moment of the podcast in its eight-year history when I watched Ozark. I get it. This isn't on that level. But um, so I did give him the heads up, but I watched a show that I feel like this was inevitable that I was going to watch this. And it is a, it is a show that anyone who has HBO or HBO. Well, look, guys, get rid of your goes. That's that whole thing is about to go sideways. Me and Kaya, we're still here on Go Corner for one or two more me, weeks. We're me still Go Gang. I, I have now noticed, by the way, like as you guys have too, if you watch something on HBO Go now, you get treated to a promo where they're like, Hey, this is not going to be here anymore. Come to Max. And it's so hungry and thirsty for us. And I'm like, no, I'm going to stick with what I know for these last seven days together. But anyway, whatever your HBO is, you can watch the show. It is a Spanish show uh, from Spain. And it has the kind of title that will make you not want to watch it. But much like... I, I, I agree with you. As is the case with the band Spoon, look past the bad title. And appreciate it. So the show is called, and I'm going to cringe when I say it, the show is called Foodie Love. Now, real quick, is Foodie yeah. Love like a lost in translation thing? Is that's there the a title better in, way of... That's the title in Spanish too. Okay. That is the global title for this show. Gotcha. Um, because I, I guess, much like as I learned in the second episode of Foodie Love, the word hipster or eepster 
is uh, just global, like the word taxi. I guess foodie is as well. And so it is a really unfortunate title for what is, in fact, a very charming rom-com that you haven't checked out yet. Um, I think you should. It's it's the first TV show made by the veteran Spanish filmmaker Isabel uh, Quache, I think. I, I don't quite do great with the Spanish exes. But this is my version of love life, I guess, is what mm. I wanted to say to you. It is a, it's a two-hander. It's about an unnamed man and an unnamed woman who meet. Um, uh, they connect online, and they meet for coffee, and then they continue to have dates generally over food. They travel from Barcelona, where the show is set, to Rome, and ultimately to Japan. They have very, very, very strong opinions about things like ramen and cocktails, so I'm in. But Jesus. It's, it's also just kind of charming in a way that I really appreciate. It is not a major show. It's 30 minutes per episode. It kind of has an Amelie meets Dream On vibe to it, which I know those are those are In that there's a lot that, of lurid sex scenes intercut with 1950s sitcoms? There is a lot of... Uh, you, so you're focused on the Dream On half of it. I <laughs> yeah. appreciate that. I, I actually have no never point, seen... I've never seen Amelie. What? Yeah. That's rewatchable, my guy. Is it? I never... Sure. I never would have referred to the extremely 1990 pay cable nudity on Dream On as lurid. But um, yeah, in that, in that th- these characters' inner monologues are often intercut with quick cuts to things, whether from their own lives or like old cartoons or movies. Uh, thought bubbles appear on the screen sometimes, stuff like that. But the first episode is almost too cute and cloying, but the second episode has this really wonderful loose, casual, wide-open view of humanity that I found really enjoyable in that, like, the bartender gets to the camera confessional just to talk, and you sort of follow someone else in the bar occasionally. And it's just kind of a nice, it's a nice, gentle hang. And and conversations on this podcast, whether we you were talking about love life or high fidelity, but also conversations in my actual life when I've talked to people and the whole, like, what are you watching inevitably mm-hmm. comes up, people are saying, like, point blank, to my face, I just want to watch something pleasant right now, and I don't. I don't blame them for that. And this would this would get a vote for me. I'm enjoying it. I'm going to finish the season. Well, that's just delightfully here. I'll have to check that out. I started watching Yellowstone, so that is my, <laughs> look, look at us retreating to our corners now that time travel is over. No, you know, I think I, I mentioned to you that I had I given this a shot. Look, I just really wanted to see. I don't know why I had not watched it yet. I think part of it was like bothering to find the Paramount Network. But ultimately, I think when it popped up on Peacock and I was like, I bet this is going to be one of the real sort of time spent leaders on Peacock. And I just decided to check it out. Obviously, I'm very a very big fan of, of a lot of Taylor Sheridan stuff. He wrote Sicario. He uh, wrote and directed Wind River. And now he's directed, I think, every episode of Yellowstone. I only really watched the first episode. Obviously, it's the biggest uh, drama on TV right now. Um, I cannot fathom how much this show could cost. Now, I don't know that it does. It very well may be shot on like Taylor Sheridan's ranch in Montana, but it every single shot is a huge wide open vista with like, I, I don't know how they, they were able to basically like get this kind of landscape and cram it into a show. It is breathtakingly cinematic. And it's also like, Super tough guy, family drama set in Montana on a ranch um, about the conflict surrounding this huge, huge, huge swath of land that is both being incur- uh, like there's an incursion by sub developers who want to build like uh, condos. And then there's also a conflict with the Native American tribes who um, they took the land from in the first place. And it's actually, I thought, 
was just like in a weird way, like you were like, I want something comfortable. I found this to be like a throwback to the kind of like TV that you and I probably would have like immediately checkboxed like five, six, seven years ago. Like expertly, expertly made drama. Kevin Costner stars in it. So we both kind of like went back to the, and, and and started watching something that like really speaks to us, I guess. I think to your point about the cost, I don't have any knowledge of it, but it is a huge success story for the blueprint that I think was pretty um, accepted for new launch, new launching services or networks or whatever you want to call them in that they wanted to make as big a splash as possible. And because of that, cut a lot of checks. Mm -hmm. And the first check they generally cut in things like this are for a star. And so Kevin Costner to come do a TV show, to anchor a TV show and not like a miniseries has to be getting paid handsomely. And then no expense was spared. And then it worked. You know, Mm -hmm. as we said last week, it's getting like 4 million live viewers on basic cable for a channel that some people may still think of as Spike. I mean, it's doing crazy numbers. My question for you about it, because I, you know, I think people this many years into the podcast know your taste and my taste and to a degree, but I think we can parse a little bit finer. Like, is your interest in Yellowstone more Ozark fandom or more Lonesome Dove fandom? Because I am less interested in, in the former, as you know, but when I hear about people with tough land and rivers, I'm kind of a cowboy these days. I think that setting-wise, I will say this for the show. It's underrated, or it's not remarked upon very often when you watch a movie or a show set in, say, the natural world, for the, for lack of a better term. How rare it is to see a director who actually like spends time out there. Mm. And how and actually not only knows like the the landscapes and the vistas and has a good eye for a mountain range, but like has a good eye for like a bird on a branch or like the way people interact with nature and the way I'm serious. Like I think that there I, is like I, I'm I'm not laughing at you because we are in video zoom. Chris saw me chuckle. I was thinking about the time, the first time we filmed in the desert in Albuquerque, and I had to hide in my trailer uh until our production designer, Richard, who came on the podcast a few weeks ago, months ago. Uh, lent me real socks because <laughs> I was wearing like little hipster ankle showers yeah. and was just getting like sand burn from the giant winds. So I was thinking that- about how I am not who you're talking about. And I too am grateful for those who understand nature. Can you imagine if when the, the WGA was like making their packaging yeah. deal, like you had been like, guys, I just have like one thing I'd like to throw into this deal as like kind of an amendment is mm. just ankle protection, just generally as strong, a- <laughs> strong ankle protection. Can, can, can we get ankle covering socks um, issued? I I chafe easily. <laughs> yeah. My my body is soft and tender. Go on. I I don't even know where I was going with that, other than to say that it's clear that Taylor Sheridan has an affinity for the place that he's shooting in. If you ask or asking me, is this more Ozark or Lonesome Dove? I would say it is leaning Ozark. There is a lot of um, unintentionally hysterical tough guy dialogue in it, which is obviously I think I have a little bit more of time for than you do at times. Although you love it in books, I don't think you love it as much to watch on TV. And there's a lot of you know, um, guy gets killed and right before he gets killed, the guy's like, just so you know, there is no heaven. And then boom, you know, I mean, like stuff like that, you know. Whoa, spoiler. <laughs> that is a tough moment to learn. I know. That. But 
you know, you were talking a little bit about cable shows, and I wanted to shout out an article that you and I both read in Variety recently by Kate Arthur and Michael Schneider that I thought was really interesting because it was about the sort of flagging the flagging uh, fortunes of a lot of um, cable channels, basic cable channels. And it uses as like an entryway talking a little bit about how um, like this Rob Drydeck show, Ridiculousness, was on for some, I, I'm going to get this wrong, but was on for like something like 113 of 136 hours on of MTV one week. And just like the kind of crap that you're finding, not that what that is is crap, but like the kind of stuff that you're finding on cable channels these days. And how they used to be these sort of incubators and these huge co- content um, content platforms. And now they're kind of going back. The article sort of talks about how they're, they're almost going back to their roots. A lot of unscripted, low-budget fare. Can't believe they didn't call me about this. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I brought it up because this kind of connects to what we were talking about on Monday a little bit. It's very easy to imagine something like Yellowstone becoming a peacock show even. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's never going to leave paramount and they would probably use that as like the flagship for if they ever bring together all viacom paramount content under one umbrella whether at cbs all access or what which they will i mean that is really was eye-catching and odd that yellowstone went to peacock and not cbs all access um inevitably it will go home again but the reason why it did that i think is what is one of the things that the article articulates really well which is that launching a successful show on basic cable wasn't just um, smart because it was the dominant way TV was communicated to people for for so long. It's that it created ancillary opportunities down the road. That mm-hmm. um, a show like Breaking Bad was, you know, from an outside studio, Sony, to AMC, huge deal for AMC, and then subsequently a huge deal for Sony when it's resold to Netflix became a huger deal for AMC because the ne- that, that's the example everyone uses because that's when it all worked the way everyone thought it would forever, right? Yes. Sony has a show, sells it to AMC, puts AMC on the map. Sony sells the secondary window of the show to Netflix, which draws a lot of eyes to Netflix, does great on Netflix, but also increases the popularity of a show that is still running originals on AMC. AMC gets more eyeballs, and it's this nice little um, dark season three, like the uh, knot. It's the circle. knot. It's a yeah. knot. And it, and, and it works. Um, so, uh, sorry, the, the Yellowstone of that is that Paramount can make nice coin selling it to a launching service that needs something to put on the air, especially during a pandemic when they don't have a lot of their own original programming. So that, that works. I guess the thing about the article that was interesting to me was that it, it did feel more like an elegy for a lost time, and it didn't probe too much on the issue of, well, why are they giving up on this? Like, Mm -hmm. have these companies pivoted to the future before the future has arrived to a degree that should be concerning? Yes. Um, That didn't really, I guess there's no answer to that. I would have been curious to to hear some more people say that maybe, yes, they have. Um, On the flip side of that is, you know, there is a, to look at the MTV, I mean, MTV is an extreme example, but to look at the MTV programming block for a week is, for people of our generation, just really dispiriting because it's not just that it's 130 hours of ridiculousness it's like movie night the pelican brief it's just like stuff they have in their content library to throw up there and i'm sitting here thinking well if they just ran reruns of trl in 120 minutes they would get more they would catch more flies with that kind of honey well do you think that they would get more viewers or do you think they would get more people being like this is so cool that they're doing this but actually it's annoying to have to sit through five minutes of commercials I, in between Soundgarden videos I, I don't know and I think yeah. the answer to that is this is me saying that the thing that I've enjoyed on Peacock since we lasted a podcast 
is what I expected to, which is the TV channels. Mm-hmm. Like just seeing, oh, there's a Saturday Night Live channel and just watching uh, Dana Carvey do Carcinio, something that was a hugely funny and important <laughs> sketch that my friends and I talked about a lot. What an incredibly like 19- deep get for you. That was 91. amazing. Carcinio. That was on. I mean, I, yeah. it, it, you know, it's weird, wild stuff. Like that was there. We used to say that all, I mean, that was a thing that we obsessed over. You still in, say that. In middle school. I mean, now I just feel it. And it's more accurate now. But that was fun. And then like, oh, there's a Bob Ross Joy of Painting channel. Like, mm-hmm. I will stop and watch that because there is still something like the thrill of like, I haven't even thought of that in years. That is something that we also pine for when it comes to like internet radio stations or something. Just please surprise us again. We're tired of constantly curating our own content. But there's a big difference between that being value added, like how fun for me to have that, and that being the financial driver of an existing network. I, and, and I agree with that. And I... I guess the only thing to say is there is going to be clearly a sea change in basic cable as a lot of networks just kind of give up the ghost. Um, they don't compete anymore in the same uh, arenas as the streamers. Mm-hmm. But there probably is an argument to be made. And I think that Yellowstone kind of makes the argument to just, that's all, that these channels should just take a step back. That they themselves didn't need to compete with Netflix. They were doing perfectly well when they were USA and AMC and whatever. And so maybe stick with that before giving up completely. Is there a middle ground? Now, I don't know because you know, as with all of our conversations these days, so much of this is about shareholder bottom line and future budgeting and planning sure. that we don't understand. Sure, and subscriber fees and, and, and all, the, all the things that go along with that but, carrier fees but, and but stuff. But weren't you shocked? The most shocking thing in that Variety story was it talks about how, you know, cord cutting. Cord cutting, mm-hmm. and, and the, the article says cord cutting is real. It's the thing people have been afraid of for, for a couple of years now, over a decade. But it is true. There's been attrition. Yeah, it's like it's like at a hundred, and then it was at eighty-two, and it's at seventy-nine, and but, yeah. But it hadn't gone down. I guess percentage-wise, it's gone down a lot. But they're like now the only eighty million households have this. Like well, that sounds they, pretty good. They they describe it quite accurately. I can't remember if it's a quote or if it's uh, Kate and Michael's description of a a lot of people who still look at cable as a utility. You know, basically, right. like it is, and I I have to admit even for somebody who I'd like to think is pretty savvy about watching lots of different kinds of television in lots of different ways, I still almost think of having a a cable subscription mm-hmm. as like having a gas line yeah. and having electric power. You, you have know, a line like, item for it in your budget. Yeah, and I'm just like, I need to have internet. My wife, for some reason, likes having a landline. So I guess we're just going to do this, you know? like. <laughs> So yeah, I, I thought that that was fascinating too. The other thing that I thought was are, really are interesting... Are you doing the Zoom on a dial-up? Is that, <laughs> is, that, is that hidden in that? The other thing that I really thought was interesting in the article briefly, and we, we you know this is probably a conversation for another day, was that the uh, cable television business model also took a huge hit from the disappearance of the uh, DVD market, which I had, I had not really thought about until I gazed mm. over to a shelf that's hidden in the corner of my living room that still has like my so-called life... Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Homicide Life on the Street box sets oh, yeah. sitting there. And that that was such a huge part about it. And I think you and I have talked about our early binge experiences being like running around and renting episode one through three of season one of 24 and then running back to the video store to rent yeah. episodes or, or, four through or seven. Or using the old version of Netflix to get get a yeah. couple seasons, then trade it in for the next few seasons. Um, that's really true. Of, of all the the things that people wrote about the Briar Patch cancellation, um, uniformly, so kind and nice a couple people were like when can we get a dvd or blu-ray of the season and those are the only ones that made me laugh 
<laughs> like we will get a six season renewal onto yeah. HBO Max, onto fucking Quibi before there is hard media made out of this show. I mean that and you're right, that was that was another revenue driver. And I think a, a lot of the industry unrest that you've seen and, and may see yet again, although we, you know, thankfully we avoided a writer's strike this year, comes from the the shrinking windows of opportunity to profit off of something. That yeah. there was a not only very well established, but very profitable path for a, almost anything that got on the air with any margin in, in any margin of success, because there were all of a sudden not just your your primary window, but secondary, tertiary windows. Shows would keep selling, keep selling, and sometimes shows still went to syndication and then international. And then yes, on top of that, get those DVDs out there, flood the streets, get that Virgin Megastore cheddar. Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about I May, I May Destroy You before we finish Dark? Or I, I, I didn't know if you wanted to like really dive into this one. Oh, I just wanted to say, um, I still think this show is a knockout. I loved this episode. Um, I think one of the most, I, I guess the, the thing about this episode that I, that I really enjoyed, and obviously I was predisposed to like this one because I just love the lead performances so much and I love their friendships and the different layers of them and the way uh, Michaela Cole doesn't let anyone off the hook for anything. Yeah. And yet despite that, or because of that, the generosity and kindness and caring that is also present in them feels more real and lived in, that they are all imperfect people even in the eyes of their friends, um, and that that makes the whole thing feel just so much more um, alive. But I just wanted to say, we, we are raving about Michaela Cole as a, as a writer, as a truth teller, as a showrunner, as a, as a moment creator, but she's a really good actor. And I love her performance. I love when she finds these moments of joy, even in, you know, in Arabelle, a dark time in her life. Like when she realizes she's going to get money to, to just put on a stupid t-shirt and talk about global warming or whatever. Yeah, let's talk about and ice she, caps. Yeah. And she can't believe she's going to get one over on these people. And her, she has this look on her face and it's such, it's so engaging. I mean, she's such a great comic performer and performer full stop. And thinking of that, I wanted to recommend to people to check out her interview on Fresh Air this week. You can get the podcast. Really interesting to hear her talk about her life and experiences. But also what made that click for me is she just says like, it wasn't Terry Gross asked if it was traumatic to like, perform or relive or remember some of her own memories of assault in through the fictional scrim of Arabella. And she was like, honestly, no, not because a, we had a therapist on set, but also because I love performing. Yeah. And, and of all the auteurs that we champion, is she low key the best actor out of them? Like, you know, I'm not trying to compare her directly to people like Lena Dunham, but like, I think, or, or or like Lin-Manuel Miranda or all these other people who are just like, they write, they direct, they do all these things, but she might be low-key the best actor out of this out of this current generation of, of people who wear lots of hats. Yeah, I mean, she might be. She also might be the best writer of parts right now. I was thinking about Terry, the character Terry. Yes. Um, you know, I think that I had sort of not struggled, but sort of I, I'd been thinking about like the consistency of the characters across episodes. And, you know, Arabella is obviously a character who's gone through a lot of changes over the last three or four episodes. But... I think what it, I realized that is such a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing is we think about characters and they're supposed to start in one place and have something happen to them and then come to some sort of resolution at the end of whether it's a season or an episode or a series or whatever. And I think that, that we see them on this arc. And I love how real the people on I May Destroy You feel. Like Terry being kind of like 
almost self-serving in her selflessness for Arabella. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Her, you know, wanting to have like a little bit of control over who is and isn't there and whether they're enjoying themselves at her own birthday party. Uh, like her kind of going up, you can feel her going up and down throughout the episode. And that's just like expert writing and performing where you can kind of see like, yeah, it's not a clean line where somebody starts here and ends here because of this. You know, it's not it's not going to be like this Luke Skywalker arc. It's going to be messy, just like the way life really is. And that, I think that's a real that's a real writer for you. And I, and I don't presume to know if there was any intention for the show to continue past its 12 episodes. My sense is that there wasn't. She's probably moving on to other things. But I think one of the things that's kept people on their toes, myself included, is that uh, finite series, especially when you reach when you go past this, the midpoint, which we've done now, this is episode seven characters arcs begin to lock in and mm-hmm. you see the you see the glide path towards destination and exactly what you're saying with Terry she is just fully 100% alive as a person full mm-hmm. of uh contradictions and um conflict there is no evident uh final resting place for this character it makes sure. me feel like this could just go on and on and on and and yet it might be even more powerful to end without that sense of, uh, you know, absolute resolution that shows like this often give us. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the f- resolution that we got from Dark Season 3. All right, we're going to, this is it. We're going to, I mean, the end is the beginning, so we might just start talking about Season 1, which has happened in my home. Has we it? are now watching Season 1. I love like a, like, so you guys have just had like an absolute fever pitch of Dark. Do you, uh, do you engage with your, your wife about like season one Dark? Are you, do you remember it well enough? Weirdly, we don't engage at all anymore. It's just a loop <laughs> of Dark on the television. And you also have no idea which version of your wife you're talking to, Adam or Eve. I'm very suspicious at times. <laughs> um, well, I guess we'll start. At, it's so funny. We will start at our conversation about the end at the beginning. Um, So I think people who have heard us talk about this know, like she started watching season two with me grudgingly when I was catching up the other week, became more obsessed than I am and had never seen season one. So she's Mm -hmm. watched it two, three, one, which is a really wild way to watch it. I am now watching one again with her. I never, ever, ever do this. I never rewatch anything. When I was a critic, I didn't have time. Now I just don't generally feel like I have the interest. It's really fascinating, especially for a show as naughty and dense as this one to see you know, some of the things that they were so clearly um, planning or setting up. And then also to, you know, in, in a way that I find makes shows feel mortal and human, the things that they just kind of whiffed on. Now that we've finished the series, and I assume our listeners have as well, can anybody talk me through why Noah was driving around town in a stretch limo with an unknown driver? And was dealing drugs, right? Was he Bartos's yes. like, connect? He was Bartos's connect. Also... I mean, look, maybe they did answer this because my main question coming into the end, and, and by the way, I, I, I won't hide this. I really liked the finale. I was very satisfied and I enjoyed I enjoyed it. It made me think very fondly of the whole show and the whole project, blah, blah, blah. My main question leading up to the penultimate episode was, are they ever going to talk about when these people actually aged? Because the show is so proud of showing people as children, as teenagers, as adults, and then as super old people. But when they become adults, generally, or even children, they've gained the ability to travel through time. Yeah. So, what were they doing during the thir- spans of 30 years where they went from one actor to another? And the penultimate episode did some of that work to suggest that like uh, Jonas was trapped in the future for quite a long time. And then Jonas was trapped in the 19th century for quite a long time. Still not quite sure when he became 
uh, old so, ass Adam. But I, but thought, I, I asked I, this to say, like, when did Noah have the time in a post-apocalyptic future to be like, I found you, the last surviving ink artist. Please give me the full back tat. Please, <laughs> I beg you. That's I'm here for question. another decade before I go back in time to search for my wife slash daughter slash mother. Help yeah. me. I, I, I have a lot of questions about that in re- the way it relates to like what has actually happened in the world. So like <laughs> there's a whole plot line where Magnus, it's definitely in a punk rock. I thought actually might be like straight edge because he has X's on his hands in one of those plot lines. And I was like, so like does minor threat happen in this world? Like what happens outside of Winden and what shapes the world? Or are they like, because they have like these somewhat pop cultural touchdowns, like touchstones in the 80s. They do dress like 80s kids. But like, is everything that happens in the 80s also happening or is it just certain things? Well, they, they talk reference about the Matrix. The Matrix. Yeah, they yeah. reference the Matrix. I, the thing is, and I, I, give them, I give them credit for this. The thing that we loved about the first season was just that intense focus on the like, you know, almost the grossly corroding incestuous, we thought it was a figure of speech. It was in fact literal yeah. feeling of being trapped in a small nowhere place where everything is always the same and nothing ever changes. Then the show became about, you know, the nature of space-time and about itself for a while. The very, very end, I thought was so, so well done, the very last scene, because it made it once again about, well, we're still trapped in this stupid place. Mm -hmm. And then the commitment to no one ever leaving it, even when you have the ability to travel throughout space-time or to alternate dimensions, (laughs) made it seem kind of like a cruel arch joke, which I think to some degree it was meant to be. Um, I, I think it, it seemed to be less about, cause there was a moment in the middle episodes where I was like, they're not showing anything else in the world because they just don't have the real estate or the brain space because they're so focused on showing their, their, their theorem and proving their work, right. That that would just complicate it. Then I was like, oh no, the, I think maybe they were a little more clever about that than I had given them credit for. Yeah. I thought that considering what it had to visualize and articulate at the end, it was an incredibly satisfying. I mean, they essentially have to like show you two souls reaching out across the chasm of time and space to then sacrifice themselves for the survival of everyone else that they love. If my reading of the end of the show is correct. Also all the credit to the show. This makes such a difference in my book. Every time we've talked about it across all three seasons, I've made a point to say how it's humorless. Not true. There was one joke. And it was made in the last scene when Volar is about to say what happened to his eye and then he gets interrupted by the power going out. And that was a good joke. That was yeah. worth it. I give them credit for that. Um, I had a couple questions. We, 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 I was hitting you with a lot of texts, but those aren't useful for podcast consumption. So I did want to bring them up here. One of them is, I, I don't know if you agree with me, but if I did find out through clearly supernatural or otherworldly means that my entire existence was a cosmic error, right, that everything that I have ever known, done, or loved was uh, an obscenity in the eyes of space and time. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I have the moral character or gumption to be like, I will devote however many years I have left to undoing this despicable knot. I would be like, okay, well, (laughs) YOLO or YOL twice or eight times or infinity times, I'm going to go to the beach or I'm going to go sit by the lake or I'm just going to go do something else for a while. I am not going to be like Adam and spend 
90 years either getting hanged, murdering things that I loved, or staring at a bad painting. Or throwing my girlfriend into a black hole. Yeah, That just doesn't (laughs) seem fulfilling, especially if your end game is to end your own existence. There, there is a remarkably little amount of Groundhog Day going on. If you right. knew that this loop was going around like that, like you could become Mozart if you wanted to. Or go to the beach, is your point. Although I will say it appears that a unrelenting nuclear rain would make mm. beach days a little bit of a hard, hard thing to do. They, the they future, do have that very pleasant day at the lake in season two. Which, you know, where they enjoy sitting and relaxing in the place where their mother slash grandmother was clubbed to death with a rock by their grandmother slash great grandmother. So, you know, it's not like everything is a haunted burial ground, I guess, in this town, which kind of harshes the mellow. The other thing I wanted to point out is as we encountered like infinite versions of our characters, I think it's probably time to do a power rankings of like the lives of which people were, were were worth having, like which versions of which people. Well, this and, is a very crucial distinction to make because okay. I was going to ask you, my version of this question was, mm-hmm. who benefited most by the, the not being untied? Like that final dinner scene where everybody oh, yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. friends again. I think Peter Doppler it comes out... Mm-hmm. A million percent. Love in life, like in a huge, huge way. He's got his girlfriend. He's got, he's just, he's killing it. So he's he's on one end of it, but your question is more what? Well, I think Peter is a great answer because Peter, every version of Peter's existence, including the version where he was just a convenient red herring in season one, was uh-huh. pretty shit. Like pretty, <laughs> pretty bad. Charlotte including- doesn't love him in any reality. Yeah. No. Charlotte didn't. So why not go to the one where Charlotte doesn't exist? Um, I think that Charlotte as a human being and as a performer kind of got short shrift because she was maybe my favorite character in season one and a very cool character. And then by midway through season two, her eyes were just any person off the street being shown an episode of season two. And then by the end, it's just like you don't even exist anymore. You just get to step through a wormhole, spend a couple days with your mother slash daughter in her nightmare apocalypse future, and then you just vanish. That See, sucks. I, that's but, what I thought about Hannah in season three. I thought she was like in her mind, whatever the German phrase for call my agent is. That was <laughs> Hannah. Was is this? I think, um, I think that, that uh, there's certain people, like weirdly, um, Mikkel, Michael mm-hmm. Michael Conwald, mm-hmm. not the worst life. Lives has you know he has one pretty disruptive event, in sure. which he loses everything he knows and goes through a wormhole into the past. Right, but then grows to a certain age, basically fine, making his little charcoal paintings in the attic, and then it's it's super bad in the last day, no question, super bad for the last day. But he gets a, a pretty decent you know chunk of okay yeah he seems the, pretty haunted but i would agree yeah it's it really is back end. it's backloaded with bad bad I, stuff happening with him i i also think that there is a case to be made for uh finale marta who lived her whole life with her loving parents in a fine universe with a nice boyfriend and then like the last two days of it gets super weird <laughs> And then she ceases to exist. <laughs> but she doesn't have to turn into old-ass painting-staring, sad face Marta. Yeah, with the robe. She doesn't have to live, like, she doesn't have to be like uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, English patient in the desert Marta. Right. She doesn't have to, even have to get her eye cut for whatever reason. She's fine. But my vote, it's a lot of preamble, my vote by far, and you mentioned him a moment ago, is uh, 
any universe Magnus. Magnus got a bad rap for me because I didn't understand why he was on the show. Yeah. So that's on me. But ultimately, think about his two versions. One version got to avoid the apocalypse with his high school girlfriend and then grow into what appears to be a relatively stable middle age with his high school girlfriend. And that's about it. That seems fine. The second version of him, which is more the uh, Neil Young burnout, don't fade away version of Magnus, sitting by a lake, high school girlfriend, maybe, maybe, you know, just indulging in some light to heavy petting as the black clouds of the apocalypse sweep yeah. them away. Yeah. Th- that's a wrap. That's a memorable last kiss, though. As far as things go on Dark or in Vinden, that's solid. Yeah. That's solid. I think the absolute loser of this entire show mm-hmm. is still Ulrich. Oh my God. Absolutely power ranking number one. Is just a serial adulterer who then spends like seemingly eternity in a mental mental hospital. So I think he definitely is comes out on the the losing end of this show. That and not just not just that he spends the last 40 years of his soon-to-be zeroed out existence playing chess with himself in the past. Yes. He is being watched over by his as it turns out, murdering mother-in-law. Yeah which is not always the greatest. And he has these two or three moments when the actual version of the women of his life come to see him and leave him in increasing states of ruin. Yes. Hana the most. Because Hana was like, I prefer mid 20th century Germany to you. Hana is savage. She was like, I could be with you in your old ass, but instead get me a horse and a buggy and an illegitimate child with a facial scar who's secretly my son's great-great-grandmother. Um, I think Did you understand we were, the ending? Before we do, I just have one last comment, observation. If I had to pick an energy for the rest mm. of 2020, but if I had to pick an energy, it would, be, it would be the energy of the NHL opening up expansion franchises in the midst of a global pandemic. What is, what is the personal equivalent of that? I, I don't know. I'm just like, that is... Are we, do we, did we already, did, are we sure we needed more hockey teams? And then not only that, like, do we need one now? Um, respect. Don't make your energy season three Bartosh energy. Season three Bartosh is just like, well, at least I get these little waistcoats to wear in the past. Oh, oh, I've fallen in love. And yet with every step my relationship takes over the next unseen 15 years, I begin to get a creeping feeling that I am my own great, great grandfather. That was big Jamie and Dev's cuck energy. I got to be honest with you. Bartas is the guy, when I used to watch baseball, this would be a phenomenon, but like where you would just be like, a middle reliever would come in and you're like, <laughs> that's not a real person. Those are just two <laughs> words put together. It would always be like Glenn or Brad or Tom or Jack, you know, and then he would pitch two innings and get shelled and, <laughs> and then you'd be like, can't believe I watched this for four hours. Are you comparing Bartosz to a loogie? He just but came it in would to be that the- guy complaining about his opportunities. Like Bartosz <laughs> was like way too bad in the locker room to have his yeah. like low of an e- to have as high of an ERA as he had. It it's pretty wild in the end game, and now we'll talk about the very end that um that it was all to save Regina, the bug eyed lady at the at the hotel. Like, but at the same time, let me give the show I, enormous credit. Was it okay? Because I I. I I, I think I think Claudia is still always going to be the the rock in my shoe. Where I was like, so this yeah. was like, I, I kind of thought the whole Claudia assumes the identity of the other Claudia bit was actually really yeah. cool and in yes. a different 
like execution of the show, I would probably lose a few characters and focus oh. solely on a, like a thing like that. That would have been a season of the show, but it also, of any other show, but maybe it shouldn't have because honestly, whatever the fuck old ass Marta was doing, I don't know. I don't yeah. think it was that compelling. I don't understand it at all. I do want to give the show credit though. Can I just say up, one other thing, which is that yeah. old ass Marta only had to ask Claudia like one question to undo that whole thing. She only, like she could have just been like, man, you remember that other day when we had these paintings hung? Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to look at them for a while with me? Because that's all like, I do. Yeah, totally. And Mar- and and she could have just been like, "Yeah, we never had these paintings hung. They were always here from time eternity." To so yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enough of your time fuckery. Um, I wanted to say that uh, I I remain really impressed by just the sheer audacity of of the show's entire project because obviously the headline grabbing thing is just the the multiple castings of each part and the fact that they found so many people who looked so remarkably alike and and that that's really shocking and impressive even more impressive and i think a little bit under the radar is that because the show was able to assume that we were on board with this new actor being a character we are already familiar with or even fond of the heavy emotional lift in the final season for some scenes fell on performers we hadn't spent very much time with at all yes yes so like really good point one of the final jonas marta interactions is with you know old sea captain adam and sad face Marta, who we don't really know, they've never shared the screen, and yet we, they are invested with our full whatever. Same thing with like old Bartosz, who looked just like him. It was unreal. Playing these parts and giving us that emotion. The bigger gambit that the show did at the end was making it all about not only a third world that we had never seen before, but making the entire fulcrum of the show characters we'd never even met that we'd mm-hmm. only ever seen in a photo. And, and I'm talking about uh, old Tannhaus's uh, children and granddaughter. Right. And the hippies. That, they were kind of hippies, right? Yeah. That was yeah. so reckless. That should never have been allowed to happen. And yet, I think they pulled it off. I, and, I, and I was really struck by it. I thought Well, that, you know what I liked about that? Yeah. It got back to the show's roots. Yeah. It was a family story. You kind of like, without getting too into like detail you you got the impression that Tanhaus and his son were obviously having this falling out and i don't know what them driving along the road and like passing by what winds up being i guess two angels in 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 some ways you know to save their lives and then to undo everything that comes after was kind of like this brilliant curveball that i didn't really expect to come i mean the two things i think really surprised me about season 3 were obviously the development or the the way Claudia kind of becomes this player in the whole game. And then that that last those last moments with Tanhouse's kids or his kids. Yeah, and and, and it, it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And it brought it back to this idea that we do violence to each other generationally, whether it is figurative or literal. Like the show became about people clubbing their parents or children to death with stones. But the the violence that was done to old Tanhouse when his family was taken from him or they, when they died caused him to ruin the world, basically. And, and so that was a nice little bit of of twinning of that, that sort of idea of emotional trauma and generational, the way generations affect each other. And it also just put the show, yeah, as you said, it, it not only set the world right, it kind of set the show right to, to the version of it that we enjoyed the most. One thing I wanted to say before we stop talking about the show, because I, I never did, um, I loved, loved the janky-ass apocalypse special effects. The, bl- I the black them. bubble? It is so Twin Peaks season three. 
I think it almost was stolen from it. Like the, there's something about that. It's not, they're not even practical effects. They're just so weirdly hand-drawn and personalized that they're not even trying to make it too real. I don't know if that was the case. Maybe it was a budget screw up, but it reminded me so much of that, that it made it feel a little bit more, it made it more of a personal apocalypse, Dude, I, if you will. Uh, my, my own uh, admission is that I kind of fell for the fireflies effect at the end that was basically like pulled from a snow, uh, like a snow patrol video. But I really liked it, it felt a little Grace Anatomy, but I liked the end a lot with like oh, them, they them should have vanishing. been playing chasing cars or something. Well, yeah. well, well, middle aged Jonas vanished into nothingness. <laughs> um, while he okay, carries so, Izzy out of the hospital <laughs> at the end, yeah. At the end, yeah. I mean, it's funny that at the end, Hannah is just back now. She's with Bowler, she is an unkillable force in the universe, yeah. It was a really well... I mean, obviously, we've enjoyed talking about it. We keep finding ways to extend this conversation. It's a really impressive feat that I think will be and ought to be remembered and and will be influential in terms of this type of storytelling on TV going forward. But also, I just... It it did start to go off the rails a bit, but you know what? It righted itself and ended. And there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, I I wonder what a six-season version of the show would have been. I specifically wonder whether or not the third season would have made a little bit more sense with more breathing room. But I don't know necessarily that we would have had like the attention span to stick with it for that. Well, that the first long. season had more episodes. The first season was was what 12, ten or right? twelve episodes, yeah. and then there were two subsequent seasons of eight each. I bet they would have been happier with ten each for the last two. But and I would have happily watched them. But I'm not sure what. I don't know where I wanted to put that attention exactly. Do you? I mean, it, you, can you imagine a second season with more investigation <laughs> into the history of Alexander Tiedemann? No, like, I'm good. I'm I was good with that. Uh, all right, Andy, let's get into our interview with Mark Duplass. We'll be back on Monday to talk uh, TV and everything else. Until then, great seeing you. Donka Baranskis. <laughs> Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the Audible original The Sandman, based on the best-selling DC graphic novels written by Neil Gaiman and adapted and directed by Dirk Maggs, hailed by the Los Angeles Times Magazine. As the greatest epic in the history of comic books, the audio adaptation is decades in the making, starring James McAvoy in the title role. The Sandman follows Morpheus the Dream Lord as he's pulled from the dream realm and imprisoned on Earth. When he finally escapes, he must restore his power to rebuild his dominion, and that's just the start. The Sandman features a powerhouse ensemble cast featuring Riz Ahmed, Kat Dennings, Michael Sheen, and more in your wildest dreams. You've never heard anything like this. Listen now only on Audible. Go to audible.com slash the Sandman. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by HBO's An American Pickle. An American Pickle stars Seth Rogen as Herschel Greenbaum, a 1920s American immigrant who is accidentally brined, hate when that happens, in a vat of pickles for 100 years, emerging in present-day New York City. Seth Rogen also plays Herschel's only surviving relative, his great-grandson Ben, a mild-mannered computer coder living in Brooklyn. While not your typical Seth Rogen comedy, American Pickle tells the heartwarming story of two men from different generations who must learn the true meaning of family. From the producers of The Disaster Artist and 5050 comes an American Pickle streaming August 6th, only on HBO Max, rated PG-13. Stream the new Max original, An American Pickle, August 6th, only on HBO Max. I don't think we need even more of an official introduction just to say that we are Pleased, thrilled, delighted to have once to have on our show once again a veteran of multiple podcasts. I was trying to think if you, Mark, were one of the first members of potentially our five timers club, 
which means you get to do a sketch with Tom Hanks and Alec Baldwin or something. <laughs> it's possible. I do it. I don't know how we would celebrate it, but it's possibly true. Um, anyway, Mark Duplass is here. We're so happy to have you. Welcome back. Guys, it's good to see both of you, genuinely. I always love coming here and hanging out. Andy, I love seeing you here. I love seeing you sometimes in the <laughs> world. Here. Out and about in, in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark, we're really excited to talk to you for a number of reasons, but obviously uh, this episode's going up on Thursday. Room 104 returns on Friday. Uh, mm-hmm. You directed and appear in the first episode of this uh, final season. And so we just really wanted to get you on and, and talk about 104 and also talk about a bunch of other stuff. Sounds great. I think you know, Mark, that um, when you come at us with an episode that you have written, directed, and are starring in that references an obscure early 90s cult artist who is name-checked by Bono on the Grammy stage, uh, you're on the right podcast for that. that is, <laughs> I have arrived. That is in our wheelhouse. Yes, um, it is. So we're referring to the first episode of, of season four of Room 104, which is, as Chris said, Friday night. A tour de force, fantastic episode. Thank but you. also one that has a lot of interesting and subtle things to say again, about something that Chris and I have been talking about for over 25 years, which is a very specific, almost insidious kind of male music fandom. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious why this story was your vehicle for getting in front of the camera on a show you've been so involved with for four years? It's a good question. I don't, I don't feel like I have a really cogent or intelligent answer, but I'll just start talking and see what happens. Um, That's what we do on this podcast. Oh, twice perfect. A week. Perfect. That's great. Um, so, you know, I have never acted in an episode of room 104. And part of the reason for that was just a logistical one was we always felt that we should keep my, actorly presence as sort of like a designated hitter in the event that someone dropped out the night before and we'd be like, we'll just throw Mark in and do it. And then when we got the sense that this was probably going to be our last season, we thought, well, we can, we can lose me as pinch hitter and just put me in something. And Wait, can I you stop know. you there, Mark? When, yes. when Brian Tyree Henry was on the show, were you just pacing <laughs> in the dugout being like, I got this? Just- I wasn't pacing. I actually had a bat and I was headed for his knees. I was like, I want this. I <laughs> want this every episode. Line. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got this, baby. Um, so essentially, uh, it, it started with this idea of how much fanboys seem to love um, their artists and and these sort of like vampiric joy they take in the pain of these things that they love. And the way that they celebrate it is with such, I don't know how to say it, but it's such, it's such a lack of awareness that there is so much pain that is bringing them so much joy on the other side of it, you know? And um, it's just a a blind spot that I've always noticed that I have been guilty of in the past, you know? And um, I love the idea that they would come face to face with it. And that, their love of this thing would continue to keep them inside of the room, despite many signals that things are not what they <laughs> appear to be um, because they just, they can't give up this man as they thought they knew him versus what he actually is when he's in the room. So that was kind of like the core of it. And then look, let's face it beyond that. I was like, Ooh, every time there's a cool, like, you know, mysterious rock star on screen, he always comes in or she always comes in with the right tattoos and the right earrings and the right clothes. And I was like, what if he just comes in like your sad uncle with the golf shirt and the khaki cargo pants and like the bad white tennies? Like, what would that mean if it was the rock star? And that was kind of how it all swirled together. 
that's also something that we've all experienced too, because when you're younger and obsessed with music and you're thinking of it purely as a gateway to um, get outside of yourself, to, you know, yes. a different version of the world, a cooler version of the world, a more artistic version of the world. And then we all are fortunate enough to continue to age and age into the demographic of the musicians and then past it and see them age too. And then yes. all of a sudden you're on the other side of it and you're like, oh, they had no idea either. They had and, no idea either. Yes. And that can be quite a different kind of fan experience, you know, to, to it, it is, you know, I actually, I, I kind of loosely based this character on the energy and feel of Mark Kozlik from Sun Kill Moon and the Red House Painters. I've become sort of like uh, friendly with him. Like he's a fan of my stuff. I'm a fan of his stuff. And, and there was a moment where I was like, would you want to play this part? You know, oh my God. And he was kind of like, I don't know if I want to do it. Cause you know, he acts in movies and things like that. And yeah. ultimately it wasn't his thing. So I ended up taking on the role, but um, I remember I, I usually try to go see him when he comes to town to play. And um, I saw him play a show downtown LA and it was definitely a bunch of like shoegazing hipsters, Gen Y people. And they, I think were expecting Mark Kozlik to be like 28 and look and feel like them. And he was on stage and he's like, you know, a little bit out of shape and he kind of had like a flat top and he wasn't playing guitar. Tar, he had just like a microphone in his hand and was kind of just walking around stage stomping around almost in this like Ozzy Osbourne like vibe and energy to him and it was traditionally not what you think of as an awesome indie cool rock star and I was looking at the crowd and they were struggling with it they were like this is not what it's supposed to be and I and I was just all I could think of was just like this is so pure and so wonderful and so I think more, um, I don't know how to say it, but I guess it's just more representative of the actual pain that he has than like sitting down with his little nylon guitar, you know? Yeah. I, I interviewed Mark once at South by Southwest in like 2001 or something. And yeah. I was absolutely nobody and in awe of him. And it's like the first Sun Kill Moon record, I think. And it was mm. in a motel on the edge of the freeway. And there was a flickering light in the bathroom that I could see over his shoulder and my main thought was, I'm asking him about like how fun it is to play a festival show, and I wasn't yes. sure. I didn't. I thought one of us wasn't going to come out of that room alive. <laughs> and it, 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 thank goodness we both did, and he was fine. He was an adult in the world, making the best yes. of the situation. But again, I, I took that and put it as part of my romanticism, you know, as opposed to being like, this is just a guy trying to get a paycheck and then go do something else. But the, yeah. he was like somebody who I remember those Red House Painters records when when I, my friends and I would listen to them and they had like those beautiful photographs on the cover that looked mm -hmm. kind of shoegazery. Yep. And this is also like around the time when like people didn't know who Will Oldham was. It was yep. just like Palace. Yeah. You know, or and Palace like it was like, hey, I heard this guy works in a coal mine in Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> and like this is actually a work progress administration recording yeah. that's been found. <laughs> And then it's just like Will Oldham. He's in John Sayles movies. He's been in totally. movies since then. Like, and you're just like, oh, but like this. And this, he's this, funny. We weren't allowed yeah. to think things were funny then. 100%, but this episode yeah. of 104 kind of touches on this time when it was like there was a lot more mythology around artists because we didn't like so fully document their extracurricular lives in a lot of ways. A hundred percent. And you know, that was part of the reason why I like put in that reference to Bono being the one on stage to sort of you know, elucidate who this person is. And uh, the ultimate compliment I ever got from this episode was a couple of people who saw it being like, I actually didn't remember when Bono did that. So I went and like looked it up <laughs> yes. and I was like, oh, that means I chose the right person for that. Like, I feel like I could see Bono in the yellow tinted sunglasses doing that 
yeah. in 1990s or actually doing that today even he really he would still do it <laughs> so, um, so so none of this episode you're you're going to go on the record and say none of this episode was like um getting in front of the volcano i'm still excited reissue that came it was out this not year. it was Your not own. that was that was a totally random thing and the volcano i'm still excited stuff i mean look i love polyvinyl records for those of you who don't know them they're like the sweetest dudes in the whole world and they've been saying listen why don't we put out this old record you should do this and I've just been kind of like, who wants to hear the EP that came out before the record that nobody listened to anyway? Like, why, <laughs> why are we doing this, you know? And they were just, I don't know. I mean, I, they were just so cool and sweet about it that I was ultimately just like, yeah, we should, we should do it if you want to do it. But there was no, like, confluence or me thinking, oh, yes, this will be the precursor to get it there or anything like that. Would you? I, I, it, I have to say, sorry, Chris, just that I did look at my email to find emails from Josh Bloom at Fanatic PR telling me that I should go to see that Volcano is, Still Excited at whatever. That is incredible. Whatever venue, <laughs> North Six or something. I, I don't even know where you would have played, but. North Six, baby. I, yeah. I lived I lived down the street it, from North Six in Brooklyn and the one venue we could ever sell out once. That's that's why I didn't go. It was sold out. And I'm so sorry. Out. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> I, uh, I was curious because, you know, going back through the archives and, and doing these kinds of um, almost, you know, restoration projects and some stuff that you've done in the past, have you found yourself at the point of your life where you're like, you notice that a lot of the music you like is from the past, more or less, you know, like when you look at like all the stuff that you may put on when you get in the car or when you have like a few minutes to yourself that generally you're going back to revisit stuff rather than exploring newer stuff. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I've actually been thinking about that a little bit. Um, and I I have identified something that I don't know if it speaks to you or if you do this, but I, for, for me, it is um, in this time where I'm just slightly unsettled by everything that is happening around us, I'm going for some soothing things. And it's like the way that people are watching friends right now because they want to live in a world that used to be like it was when they were younger and there were no cell phones and this, the simpler times of it all, you know? And for me, I definitely find myself pulling up those Mojave three records yeah. and being like, I want to be here. I want to be 26. I want to <laughs> be puerile and stupid and just sit and let this wash over me. That is definitely happening i want to live on a version of a california beach as imagined by english people who have never been to california which <laughs> yes! is the best version of california <laughs> it is it is the best version that is a very good point california dream in, in the best way yeah um so i do i do some of that i mean and i do actively seek out new music sure through friends of mine who are like you know just closer to it and so i don't have to waste time and energy trying to figure things out um but when it comes time for comfort, I, I do go to the old stuff. It's just one of those things. So this is, you know, people, I, I, I thought it was purely for alliteration purposes and press releases that everything, the hip trend is the fourth and final season mm. um, of things. This is, final this was announced and, and promoted as the final season of Room 104. And what I want to do is, because we ask you the tough questions here, Yes, is, are we sure? Because... This seems like a very COVID-friendly show to make. It's also an exciting, thrilling, surprising quality show. But Thank at you. this moment, when you have a program that has one set and limited cast, and I would imagine you could limit the crew, especially once you get rid of the, the designated actor who's just been, you know. Uh, yeah, we already trashed him. We're good, <laughs> just, yeah. just, just super spreading in the background. Um, it feels like the kind of project, the more hands-on DIY type of project that, 
could flourish at a time like this with so much uncertainty. I agree with you. Um, I wish that everyone agreed with you and not to get too much into the weeds, but um, I really believed that when everything started happening with quarantine and lockdown, that shows like this would become immensely valuable. The shows that could be made Mm. quickly in quarantine. But I think that the larger thing that's happening with TV shows and movies is this type of content, which I would call added value, cool, late night, well-reviewed stuff that brings in a good amount of viewers, but is it changing the game for HBO? Mm -hmm. No. And they are looking for game changers in any way, shape, or form. And so, God, I hope so much that millions of viewers show up more than showed up in the first three seasons. And HBO says, you want to take another crack at it? Mm -hmm. I'll probably try to find some way to ask them and see if they do it. But the truth of the matter is, I as much as I would like to make more of these, I don't disagree with HBO for saying it's time to end this show. And the truth, the hard truth of the matter is they should have done that after the first season because they made the first season. We got a good amount of viewers. It was poppy and fun. And then they gave me three more seasons where it didn't really grow that much, just me doing my thing. And I think part of the reason they did that is they realized that, um, we were doing something cool for the whole ecosystem and for HBO, which is we were giving all of these underrepresented voices their first shots mm-hmm. in TV. So you had all these like character actors who had never played a lead before, like Karin Sony getting his first lead role. And then we were giving a lot of people their first directing job. And so they saw this as like a AAA farm team mm-hmm. from which to draw talent from for themselves. And also to let me give HBO, honestly, at the time, a network, that had some representation issues as well. And so I think that like we were really good for them. But if I'm the head of HBO right now, I'm saying, Mark, you could make another season of Room 104, but we already know there's a ceiling as to how popular yeah. this is going to be. So if I'm going to give you X amount of dollars, do something new because more press will come to it and talk about it. And it has that potential to break out, which we, we kind of already know this won't do it. And then that's when you say, Casey... Room 105. Yes! There we go! You know, I always thought... Room Game of Thrones. I think think it's Room 106, because technically that would be the next door room. Sure. Usually it's that. Um, And then it's... um, This is why you're getting those meetings. That's right. And it's the narrative audio podcast, because you only get to hear what goes on through the room. You don't (laughs) get to see it. Every so often it cuts to you with a glass. Yes, yes. Um, It's interesting to hear you say this because this is a conversation we've been having um, over the last few pods and weeks, just generally trying to read the room for the industry. And obviously it's a moment of intense pause and hopefully some reflection. But it does feel like some things have significantly shifted, whereas when TV was trying to make the play for we're as good as movies or we're as interesting as movies and we're the place where the cool, fun stories are happening, that's when you find room for the projects that might not have the highest ceiling but have a very worthwhile floor and bring in a lot of different types of ideas or attention or awards. It does start to feel like we are now almost fully committed to blockbuster town um, where we're down to like, you know, the things we would say about movies 10 years ago, if you can't sell it on the poster, you can't sell it. And I guess the question is, do you feel that way? and is it solely because, you know, everything that gets made by these larger companies has to be out in front of the homepage of a new streaming service that has to attract eyes for $15 a month, et cetera? Yes, et cetera. I think that that is a large part of the ecosystem. I may be a little bit Pollyanna in my belief that there is still room for the 
cheaply made sliver juggernaut of a show like Fleabag that can break out mm-hmm. at a price and not only bring in a significant amount of people, but bring in people who are significantly dedicated enough to that thing to pay $15 to get it. And so if I have a job description for my overall deal at HBO, for what I do at Netflix, honestly, it is, you don't have to get people to, um, to subscribe to HBO to love everything that's on there, right? What you need to do is offer them something that gets just a thin sliver of the audience, but gets them so passionate that they mm-hmm. can't live without it. You can be really, really valuable to them in doing that. So, so the way I'm, I'm approaching things is not to change my approach and say, well, now it's a Game of Thrones or bust. What I'm thinking is like, what are the, what are the risk reward scenarios for HBO that make them think, you know what? This is cool. Like four years ago with Room 104, anthology show. He's going to break out new talent. He's going to make sure that like we have a, a ton of underrepresented voices in front of and behind the camera taken care of. And you know what? There's a chance that even though this looks like he's hitting a single, there could be an error in the outfield and it turns into an inside the park home run. So you don't always have to swing for the fences to be valuable. But I think it's getting harder. And I realize my own privilege of having been in this industry for 15 years, having been uh, a nice person that people generally like to work with because I'm amenable and pragmatic and I don't yell at HBO all day long. Where are my billboards? Where's, you know, (laughs) that has allowed me to stay alive. I think, um, you know, I would be not speaking this um, comfortably about what, what my place is if it were 15 years ago and I was just getting out of Sundance. Without getting too detailed, I was curious whether or not there are any lines that you sort of draw for yourself creatively when it comes to something like Room 104 or the projects that you're talking about yeah. where you're like, I have a vision for what I want this to be or the people I'm working with has a vision for what I want this to be. And if somebody is like, Mark, if you just like push it like a little bit closer to like a Twilight Zone kind of thing or yeah. maybe here's like six titles that we own, would you want to have this like exist within this universe or any of the kind of things that Andy and I are like always kind of sort of marveling at, which is the sort of, we're going to go through, we're going to like see what we have in the in the vault here in terms of intellectual yep. property. Maybe you can do something, a new take on this. Like, yeah, but you seem to be pretty stridently independent creatively. And I wonder yeah. whether or not that, that winds up coming into your thinking at all. It's a great question because I do get tempted when like, you know, the DC universe says, hey, we have all these extra characters and we have an existing fan base for this. And if you take your level of, you know, artistic precision and what you do and make something kind of cheaply with one of these things that's an existing brand, you could get 10 times more viewers than you normally get mm-hmm. for your little movies on Netflix. And they're not wrong about that, you know? And I'm not stridently against it for any moral or creative reasons. I got to be honest with you, like the main reason we don't do those kinds of collaborations is because there is a level of protection of the brand and what it needs to be that supersedes my ability to be loosely creative as well it should. So I don't blame them for that. I just know that myself, I'm going to be a much happier person if I can be freewheeling and do what I need to do. And if that means at the end of the day that I'm only going to be able to make things at 0.2x of the budget that I would get if I had gone DC, or I'm only going to get 0.1x of the viewership. I would just so much rather at the end of the day, like have made a ton of things the way I wanted to make them and have a library of cool titles by the time I'm done. And, you know, I weirdly didn't 
engineer this from the front of my career because I didn't understand business then. But, but by making things on my own and having the ownership of all these things, like $10,000 movies, $20,000 movies, we've built up this massive library of titles that mm-hmm. is greater than the sum of its parts. And so while I'm not like you know, the richest person in the world, at some point in the next 30 years, I'm going to be able to turn around and say, here's 100 indie films and 12 TV shows and eight podcasts, and I own them all. And that will be where my value comes in. So that's then you throw your head back and laugh, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Then we realized it was all a Joker Joker origin story. That was Fat Albert. It was Fat Albert, but I also thought the world is different in a hundred. How many years are you doing this? When you're, I don't know. I'm doing this. I think I'm doing this when I'm like seventy. That's when I'm doing it. Oh, okay. Um, So, (laughs) I I I appreciate what you were saying, and I was going to ask about this as well about Room One Hundred Four. You know, being a way to kind of backdoor in a lot of underrepresented voices behind the camera, certainly as mm-hmm. well. That's been part of a conversation that that we've been having, that I've been having, that I'm sure you're having with your own company and people that you work with, as well as larger studios. So I don't want to make this question specifically about HBO, but rather an industry-wide question, which is to yeah. say that in my extremely limited experience, having something that is representational and extremely diverse, it was viewed by companies as added like how how nice that's a bonus that's good we like that but there there is the step from saying we like that to there actually being structural acknowledgement of that and then what we can do to continue that and yep. the value of that those seem to be two different conversations it's it's very easy in a twitter universe to be like look what we did we got rid of golden girls yeah and then but then what are we actually doing now so somewhere in that long statement i think is a question which is just i guess your perspective on making the industry better and making these larger companies and corporations and studios, et cetera, et cetera, realize the value long-term to them because they're so keenly focused on uh, the extreme short-term? It's such a good question. And and it's way over my pay grade and experience to have uh, definitive ideas of what the solutions are, but I can wait, kind wait of till go- you sell that hundred movie package. Exactly. Then. Boom. <laughs> then with my $1,700, um, <laughs> But I, I mean, I, we're definitely talking about it a lot in the little, you know, kingdom of Duplass brothers and what, what is going to be our role and how are we going to do this? Um, and we're noticing a couple of things before I get into the weeds, what we're doing. Um, I'm noticing that obviously everyone is awake now and realizing that uh, there is systemic change that needs to happen. Some people seem to understand that this is going to be a thing that is not only better for the ecosystem at large. It will improve the quality and the diversity of the actual stories they tell. And, and some people are saying, if we don't check these boxes off and we don't have this many of that, we're going to look bad and get canceled on Twitter. So we got to do it. Right. Now, those are different motivations. At the end of the day, I try not to come down too hard on those people with the latter motivation because the end result is still a good thing. It is still a hiring of diverse voices and employment of those things. So what are you going to do? Like, that's a better move in a better place than we were yesterday. As to like what we're doing, it's been such an interesting, like self introspective journey for me and Jay to talk about what has Duplass brothers place been and what could it be to do better? Cause I think we have felt very good historically about how we foster up and coming voices. Right. And if you go back and look at interviews with us, in like early 2000s or, or like early 2010s when we were really like in a place to like, you know, g- give someone $100,000 to make a movie, mentor them, you know? 
it was all about us saying young and up and coming filmmakers. And we did a great job of that. Here's the blind spot. We live in an ecosystem where the people who are poised to be plucked for that step have been supported with an inherent privilege of three steps below that. And that means that 98% of those people in the film industry are white males. And so when we were grabbing those people to mentor, they were people who had been through the Sundance Labs, gotten out of USC mm -hmm. film school. Mm -hmm. They were in a place of inherent visibility because of that privilege that left them there. And we didn't realize that we needed to wade deeper and look further out and actively find those other voices. So like, frankly, our resume is full of people who needed help who were up and coming filmmakers who were predominantly white males. And it was a total blind spot that we just missed. And then I would love to say that I identified it and helped to like fix that on my own. But I think it was the movement that helped educate me that this was an issue. And then something really interesting happened with the beginning of Room 104. It was, it was when Jay and I had just gotten canceled with Togetherness and we were starting to consciously uncouple as a sort of like codependent creative duo. And honestly, we were starting to get tired of ourselves a little bit of like, we have been making stories about male intimacy and working out our brother issues for the last 10 years over and over again. And it, those are great. Jeff lives at home and togetherness. Like, it's all great. But it's time to make a shift. And it was also coming at a time where we needed some breathing space from each other. So Room 104 was happening at the same time. And I'm like, well, if I'm not going to deeply collaborate with Jay, who's it going to be? So I started telling stories side by side with other people who I felt were either a, more authorized to tell that story because they were just better at that genre because I was telling all kinds of genres, or B, an awareness that it might be a little bit of cultural appropriation for me to truly author this kind of story. So let me find a filmmaker who can do that. And, and it, something amazing happened, which was Room 104 is not my auteur vision. I'm like the uncle there who is a supporter and uses whatever platform or power or like filmmaking skills I have so that somebody can do their thing. And that became so fulfilling to me because I didn't feel the pressure to have to tell unique stories. And I was honestly starting to get that feeling of like, am I going to be one of these artists who made interesting stuff in his twenties and thirties and then just makes repetitive garbage for the rest of my career? So it was a selfish thing for me to be able to do that. And I realized it made my show so much better better. Mm -hmm. So Room 104, I think, is oddly the microcosm of where we want to mm -hmm. head as a company, um, using our skills, whatever we got, but not just for one episode of television to create whole series with these people, to create films with these people. You know, we're, we're starting to get into narrative audio podcasts and things like that. So, so that's my long-winded answer of saying, uh, you know, we are going to do what we luckily fell into with Room 104 as now a design for things moving forward as a company. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's interesting you, you mentioned a little while ago, you were talking about Fleabag, and Andy and I have been talking about this show, I May Destroy You, over the last couple of, of mm -hmm. weeks, um, both of which are examples of shows that I think not only feel different because of who is in front of the camera, but in yep. the stories that they're telling and how they're telling their stories. And yep. I think it, it's it's been fascinating to think about, like, merely making what the same old stuff we always make with you know a more diverse cast both in front of behind the camera because right. i think that's only half of it i think part of it is that there's a real desire out there for different kinds of stories and maybe told in entirely different ways without 
some of the same expectations and you know, it, it, I think that there's a certain predictability to a lot of TV and a lot of movies yep. where you're just like, oh yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen in episode six or episode nine, or it's the penultimate episode that this happens has to yep. happen. I was curious whether or not with 104, the anthology part about it got was able, you were able to shake that off a lot easier, where you you're not worrying about like here's the part of the season where this needs to happen. A hundred percent. The freedom of the anthology form allowed for so many of those things, not only from what you're talking about, a creative perspective of just like, well, it's just 22 minutes. I'll swing wildly. If we fuck up really bad, it was just one episode and I don't have to pick up the pieces in the next episode. It opens and it closes. So that was great. It also allowed me to, if I'm speaking candidly, more freely take chances on unproven talent because Mm -hmm. again, their window started and closed within 25 minutes. So I, I didn't realize that at the time, but that's what I was doing is thinking like, well, this is great. I can take the swing as opposed to I'm, I'm a little more scared to take the swing on a showrunner that I might have to work with for six years if they are unproven. So that's one of the things we're talking about at the company right now is like Room 104 was also this sort of weird mentoring factory. And we need something like that so that we can not just give someone a shot and throw them into the lion's den of running a show, but to give them the skills that they need to come up through it. I mean, Karin Sony and Natalie Morales are two wonderful examples of two people who got director shots with us in Room 104. They started as actors there. They watched the show develop. They were basically shadowing while the show was happening. They lent their star power to the show, which was a gift to us for them to work for scale in that show. And then we gifted them in return the ability to get their first directing credit on a major streamer and then they go off and then they have huge careers. That is like the ideal flow. So I, I'm going to need another container or something like room 104. And I don't know what that looks like yet. Yeah. Because that, that what you spoke to, and this is something that I think people inside the industry are aware of, but people outside of it might not pay as much attention to, but that idea of mentorship and second chances is so, so crucial because it, it's, it's, increasingly, if you if you pay attention to deals being made and opportunities being given, it's not about the first chance. It's about who gets a second chance. Oh my God, you are hitting something so important right now. And I feel like nobody talks about it. And it's like, honestly, it's like a little bit of shame that I have about the amount of privilege that I had to become the artist that I have become. And I look at some of these speeches that I gave in like 2007 just like wildly spouting off about all you got to do is just pick up the camera and do it yourself with like kind of zero awareness, honestly, of like parents who loved me and told me they loved me every day and they believed in me and I could do anything. Put me through college, no college debt, gave me like, I don't know how much they gave us. Well, they they didn't give us the money to make our first movie, but they gave us money to buy an edit machine so we could start a business to make money. Mm-hmm. that first movie was a failure. We never showed it to anybody. Then they gave me and Jay each $5,000 loan to make the puppy chair. The second one, as you're talking about. And that is why I am who I am. So everything that I'm about right now in the mentorship part of the process is trying to approximate that experience for people as much as possible who didn't have that thing. And, we're, and, we, and we are doing a lot of things like that. I, actually, my wife, Katie and I just filed for a nonprofit where we're putting like a million dollars into a fund to take shots at people, not only on film and TV, but like painters and novelists or people who even have like a new sunscreen line that they want to shout out where we give them like a ton of belief, love, and like five to $10,000 
of a zero interest, zero equity loan. That's like, hey, if you hit it, pay it back into the fund someday. But otherwise, like, go. I mean, it's, it's me uncling. That's just what I'm doing. Um, you you want to be on Shark Tank, man. You, you I want to be on Shark Tank. <laughs> I'm more interested in if your parents are still available to tell me they love me. Because they I are feel like available. That, okay, but that's you know, great. you know, and you know what? We're going to call them right after this. They're hanging out. <laughs> I mean. Not to be corny, but it's like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was like, that is why everybody's like, Mark, how can you walk into a room so confidently with these executives and pitch a show like Room 104 and make them believe yeah. that it's going to work for them? And it it literally comes down to that thing of, I love you. You're amazing. Every day I heard it. You also have this really cool grant going on. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this because Andy and I were such huge fans of Lynn Shelton and I know she yeah. meant so much to you. And I just saw recently that you were working on this this it's seattle's northwest film forum and, mm-hmm. and you guys are doing a, of a certain age grant which is for for directors uh, w- women or non-binary filmmakers over 39 right yeah so the the idea right. behind that grant is really just to continue lynn's legacy who is a filmmaker who didn't break out until she was in her 40s um and you know to point out another blind spot of mine that i'm just figuring out is whenever i've talked about up and coming filmmakers in the past, I've always used the word young. And there's a lot of ageism in our industry of like, no one wants to work with older people because they want the young scrappy energy. They don't feel like they're going to want to stay up for 14 hours and do it. And it really sucks. And I've been giving these seminars with a company called Seed and Spark, where we travel around the country and tell people how they can make their movie locally, wherever they are with available materials. And most of these people are like, retirees discovering this new phase of their life. And I started thinking about it like, Jesus, who do you want telling stories? Like the 22-year-old who doesn't have the life experience or like this 64-year-old woman who like has raised two kids, has a grandchild, been through three divorces, like the level of life experience, it's just valuable. So anyway, that's our attempt to to try to support that. And and it's a $25,000 a year grant um, unrestricted for, for a woman or non-binary person over the age of 39 to make their first movie, ideally. And, and it's weird that you bring this up because like, I think I'm discovering something in this whole conversation that's coalescing for me, which is my belief in just giving people enough to take a shot. Um, and rather than give one person a million dollars to make their movie. I really like giving people fives and $10,000 and a little bit of love and mentorship to go. And I think that ideally will create more shows like I May Destroy You and Fleabag. Mm-hmm. To your point, you know, Chris, of like, where's the weird new energy going to come from? If they're all mentored through the writer's rooms and all the same stuff, it's going to kind of start to feel the same. That external strange energy of coming from non-industry spaces is where those, I think, hopefully where those sparks of originality can come from. I think um, since we've talked so much about being outside the industry, I want to give Chris space to talk about what he most wants to talk about with you, which is the morning show. Let's uh, do it, baby. He wants to go deep into the industry. I I, I got to say, one of my, for as much as you, you've just, we've gone through all of the things that you've accomplished as a director and as a producer, but one of my favorite things is Mark Duplass, like, uh, like fourth guy in the movie i love uh, by the way i'm fifth on the call sheet it's my favorite it's my favorite place to be it's, it's so a, funny you've identified that because i have two it's where i'm most comfortable what what are you getting 
What, well, what I just, that? I just, was, I remember as far back as Zero Dark Thirty. Just being, yes. Damn, yeah. Mark Duplass <laughs> seeing this scene <laughs> is going to get Bin Laden, man. This is wild. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I was always, it, I think that there was like in the beginning, I always thought like, oh, I wonder if he's doing it. Like this is like the, this is the day job to go then do because that's like with with when you, if you come up through indie rock, it's like you work at a florist or you work at a record store, yeah. and for you, you appear in Zero Dark Thirty, and then you go <laughs> off and do your thing. You go go on tour, or you make your movie. But I think over the years, it's like there's almost two or three versions of you. There's there's the indie filmmaker version. There's the person who's appearing in things uh, or working on things like Room One Hundred Four. But then there's like you'll just go and you do this like really the yeoman shift on these shows and kind of like are in the background of these things, but I, I've always really enjoyed the performances. Thank you for that. That's really sweet. And uh, um, it, it strokes my ego in all the right ways that I need. So thank you. Um, I think what I love about something like the morning show or showing up in bombshell for 12 minutes or zero dark 30 for 10, you know, obviously there's zero pressure because it's not resting on me from a creative standpoint and also from a financial standpoint. Um, so if the movies or the TV shows don't work as well, it's not like my starring vehicle. So I get in trouble. I love that. Um, and then, you know, I've always loved the way that people talk um, about John Cazale, who's mm-hmm. like one of the great character actors. And anybody who talks about him, they're always just like, God, when you're in a scene with John, he just makes me better. I don't know what it is, but I'm better in those scenes. And I love that so much. And I always wanted people to feel that way with me. Um, and so I kind of, when I'm in scenes with Reese and Jen or, or Steve Carell or even Billy Crudup, who are, I think, the more central characters in those shows, um, I feel like my job is to put in a good performance, but to make them great in whatever way I can. And if that means, like, when it comes time for my coverage to, like, surprise them with something that they hadn't heard before in the scene. So we get a genuine laugh out of it or improvise something and shake it up because it's getting stale. And I can kind of almost become like an ally of the filmmakers as like a tool to shake things up in the scenes here and there. Um, It's just one of my favorite things to do. And I'm sure you guys have talked about this kind of stuff, but like, you know, you guys are in such a unique spot here with what you do. You are so uniquely qualified to do this well. Nobody runs this kind of content thing like you do. And I'm always looking for the places where like, this is what I'm uniquely qualified to do well. And if somebody can do it as good or better than me, I should not be doing Mm -hmm. it, which is kind of why I stopped directing movies for a while. Cause like, I think I'm a good director, but I don't think I'm like, when I watch these directors in room 104, the way they, pair the way they visually understand cinema i don't i'm okay but i'm not that you know but like i really do believe and i really appreciate you saying that chris like you put me in the fourth or fifth spot in a big show where you need an actor who can truly be a supporting actor and like elevate everybody like nobody's better than me at knowing how to like hit the marks if you don't get to the mark in time improvise the line that's going to shake it up and like make people just kind of help to elevate them so that's one thing I'm trying to do more of. When I was thinking about asking you about this similar sort of thing, moving between the the these high gloss, high test productions and the work that you're doing more to scale, I was originally thinking about framing it kind of as a Prometheus myth. Like, is there some <laughs> fire that you're bringing from, or, or at least a scented candle from Reese's yes. dressing room that you yeah. bring back to tell yes. people who are on the up and up about what's waiting from on, for them on the other side? But I think the more fair question, probably the more interesting question, is what are you ferrying back and forth? 
Um, yeah. What 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 is what is what is similar? You know, between a however many days you have to shoot that premiere room one hundred four versus however many days you get per episode of of the morning yeah. show. What, what, in what ways are the actors the same ultimately? Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, I'm always like learning different things. Like I've, for instance, I've been operating under a little bit of a myth for myself that, um, you know, when you're making content, you can either focus on the story and the acting, or you can focus on the visuals. And when you do one or the other, you, inha- you inherently are on a seesaw of, of, uh, and, and, you know, a finite amount of value and it just it lessens and increases on either side. But then when I was on the morning show and I saw Mimi leader directing and she was just like doing all these like crazy one or dolly shots with the expectation that we would bring an organic performance that was not stilted in the way that I often feel happens when you have an intensely cinematic mm-hmm. shot. I was like, Oh, we can do both. Like I can fumble around and stumble on my lines and have the naturalism and the subtlety and that. So I see that and I ferry that right back into my productions. And I'm like, guys, I was wrong. We can do dollies and feelings. It's going to be okay. You know, Uh, likewise, I remember being on the league and I was like, it was an all improvised show and I was improvising a lot of my things. And then Jeff Schaefer, our director was like, every now and then we'd be like coming up to, opening a scene by knocking on someone's door, saying hello, and they bring us in. He'd be like, don't improvise this. This is an exposition scene, and let's just get it done and move on. And I was like, oh, right. Let's not, and then I'm going to ferry it back to my own thing. You know? I've seen blooper reels for the league ep- seasons where you guys are like begging for forgiveness from the crew because you can't get through like a, yeah. hey, yes. pass me the chips, and that's it. And you guys are, just, and you're just crying and making I'm so jokes. sorry. Yeah. And Manzukis is destroying people. And then like, they're like, I'm yeah, I mean, so sorry. It. You guys are like on time and a half at this point. Manzukis. <laughs> uh, I will I will never forget that there was like a a moment with the uh, I can't remember exactly how it went down, but talking about how someone's died. um, And then (laughs) then it came up that Whitney Houston had passed away. And then it was right after Michael Jackson had passed and he threw in Michael Jackson. No. And like, (laughs) I mean, six hours before we were able to get that down, like the whole day we couldn't get it. Um, So, yeah, but. But as the original question, the, the things that I'm, I find myself more ferrying from the big things and the different things into my own than maybe bringing things from my own productions into things where I'm acting because I kind of don't feel like it's my place, you know? And, and part of the reason I love acting is that I, I don't have the responsibility of it and I love just kind of being free to do my thing. Um, and I, and I, I do get concerned about being like, you know... Uh, white male coming into a female led environment of the morning show and being like, shouldn't you do it a little more like this? You guys, right. right. They're amazing and they're doing it so well. And I'd rather just, you know, shut up and listen. We, you've given us so much of your time. Thank you, Mark. But I do have to ask one last thing before we let you go, which is basically like we, we enjoy talking to you for this reason. We enjoy watching the work that you and your brother do for the same reason, which is that you approach art and life, at least publicly from a, position of what appears to be optimism. You know, I think that there's a, there's, yeah. there's a lot of positivity and hope just built into the creativity that you and your brother bring to the projects that, that I find inspiring. I think a lot of people do too. I guess the question is, how are you managing this moment and what hope do you feel? Because there is a school of thought that like when things are at their lowest is that there is opportunity there. And feel free to take this question in whatever direction you like, because I guess I kind of meant in terms of making stuff again, when we'll be able yeah. to do that. 
But if you want to fix the whole world too, we'd be open to that. We could talk about that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm really not looking at this moment from a production standpoint as much as, as you, you know, very kindly illuminated Room 104 as a COVID-friendly production. To me, it's still a little um, spiritually, emotionally, and financially risky to be going on set and making yeah. things right now. So I'm looking at what I'm calling contactless production. Um, we have already made one movie. I haven't announced it yet um, in quarantine. Um, and, and, and we made it in a way that literally no one saw anyone or had to touch anyone in order to make this movie. Did you pay your children scale or do they tap uh, yeah. hardly? Like what did you <laughs> Exactly. They do not make any money. <laughs> um, and then They are um, though part of the DC universe, unbeknownst to them. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, exactly. Um and so the Duplass Child universe. Yeah, Boom, right. nailed it. Um so and then we're also focusing a lot on on narrative audio podcasting right now, which is a really cool an open world. It's a form that everyone's trying. Respectfully, none of the shows are very good. No one knows how to do it just yet. And that's really exciting to me to be at the forefront of something like that. And that's a democratized tool. So that keeps me optimistic as well. It's just like, yeah, anyone with an iPhone and GarageBand could make the next great audio podcast. I believe that it requires zero dollars. So that's cool. Um, and, you know, I guess the way I feel about in terms of the the larger moment and staying optimistic about where we're headed and, and the kinds of stories we should be telling. Um, it comes back to what we touched on lightly earlier, which is everybody um, is being more inclusive right now in their hiring and in the storytelling and not everybody has the right motivations for it. Some people are just trying to check boxes so that they look good. Um, but I, I still think that that is moving us in the right direction. And I don't know, man, maybe I'm Pollyanna and I'm naive, but like, I think that there is a huge wave coming our way, uh, a huge wave that is going to be is that due to the, the, the polar ice caps melting? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It's an actual... I'm a little concerned. Yeah, no, this is an emotional wave towards tolerance and an emotional wave towards wanting to feel better regardless of how much people are spewing hate and whatnot and when you talk to people on and almost every person you talk to they will they will say and they will express regret that everybody hates each other right now and i just i don't know what it is i don't know if it's the way i'm raised or what it is but like you know that whole like person digging through a, a pile of shit and they say i know there's a pony in here somewhere <laughs> like that's kind of who i am we so appreciate you bringing a, a dollop of optimism to the show, Mark. And you're welcome anytime. Uh, Room 104 starts on Friday. It's final season, and we can't recommend it highly enough. Mark, thanks so much for joining us, man. It's great to see Always you. Always great to talk to you guys. Cheers. Take care, man. Take care. <laughs>